Good morning. My name is Jeff Klein. I'm one of the pastors here at Elmhurst CRC along with Greg DeMay. Now, this corona thing, you know, I got to say it's a little strange because we're here preaching to a bunch of empty seats. Uh, but the great thing about it is Pastor Greg and I have been able to collaborate together on these sermons, and we're having a good time doing that together. Right, Pastor Greg? Amen. Yeah. Totally great. Even great though presence, we're, bro. we're distanced, we're having a good time doing this. So. Yeah. We're at least eight feet apart. That's promise. right. So I'm going to pray for us as we dig into God's word, and then we're going to get started this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, we need to hear from your spirit. We need a word from you this morning. So Lord, we pray as we open your word again, that you would speak to us, each one of us, in whatever unique way you need to speak to us, Lord, speak into our lives and our hearts, so we can catch what it is you're saying to each one of us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So I want to talk a little bit about the calendar. I know it's your favorite topic, keeping track of times and dates and stuff. Love that. Love so um, just a week ago, it was Easter Sunday morning, although I don't know if it, it kind of felt like winter this last week. It snowed twice, True. Uh, but it was Easter. And in the church year, the calendar gets divided up into two main parts. Um, so the church year really starts about a month before Christmas season called Advent, the month lead up to the celebration of the birth of Christ, and uh, the first part of the church year really ends uh, just about now, right around Easter. So there's four months where every year the Church of Jesus kind of shines the spotlight on the birth, life, ministry, suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ, so we keep our focus exactly where it should be on Jesus. But that leaves two-thirds two more of the year, or eight more months, and in those months, it is an annual practice for the church to train and practice to be the people of Jesus, to be the presence of Christ in the world. So we are just entering this eight-month period uh, where we go into training to be the body of Christ. So oftentimes on the week following Easter Sunday, we'll talk about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. Sometimes we do study the book of Acts, talk about stuff in the early church. But this year, uh, we are going to go a little deeper into the vault uh, back to the beginning of the Old Testament even, to see what God's people were doing. Um, so specifically, we are heading into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is a place in the Bible where God routinely takes his people, his chosen and his favorite people. So Friday around here kind of looked like a northern wilderness, like snow on the trees, a few inches of snow on the ground, a steel gray sky. That is not the kind of wilderness that we experience in the Bible, but the wilderness of the scriptures are blue sky, burning sun, red rocks, desolate, dry, barren places. The presence of water is spotty at best and resources uh, and survival is tenuous. It's a place where God routinely takes his people time and time again. Why does he do it? Why does God take his chosen ones into the wilderness? Nobody wants to go there. Nobody wants to stay there. The wilderness means that life as you know it, life as we know it, is over for a period. And how long will that period last? Only God knows. In the wilderness, we human beings don't control the stopwatch, the time, the calendar. We human beings don't control the curriculum. Only God does that. But as our wilderness teacher and professor and shepherd and timekeeper, God does indeed show up faithfully in the wilderness. That's the whole reason he predictably shepherds us as his people there to be present for us in a way that we didn't even know we needed for him to be present for us. 
So in the scriptures, it's really a who's who of who God takes into the wilderness. Joseph goes into the wilderness. Uh, Ruth and Naomi go into the wilderness. King David himself, after he's anointed king, has to go in the wilderness for like a decade. The entire people of God go into the wilderness. In the New Testament, Jesus himself goes into the wilderness. The apostle Paul, the great church planter, after his dramatic conversion, three years into the wilderness to retrain and recalibrate. So friends, we, all of us, have just entered into a wilderness period together, I believe. Not just Elmhurst CRC, not just the church with a capital C, uh, not just the United States of America, but all of us, humanity, the globe, we are in a corona-compelled wilderness of 2020 and beyond. Don't know how long it's going to last. Nobody wants to be here, but yet we are here. So while we are going through this global experience, I think it's going to be wise for us in worship to walk alongside the children of Israel in the pages of of the Old Testament and remember what our spiritual mothers and fathers learned at the feet of our good shepherd God so many years ago. So we are going to start in Exodus chapter 13 today. If you want to hit pause, grab your Bible, or if you want to surf over to Bible Gateway, um, that's a great place to find the scriptures always. Um, So Exodus chapter 13 starts right after the 10th plague, right after the first Passover. God's people walked out of Egypt and pretty much straight to the promised land, right? Like it was easy. They got out of 400 years of slavery and then just everything was good. It was land flowing of milk and honey, shakes and steaks and Snickers bars all around, right? Like take us, take us to the world now, of Exodus 13. You've read Pastor a different Jack. Bible than I've read, Pastor Greg. I don't know. The steaks and yeah. shakes, it's awesome. But now, before we actually dig into the story, we're going to dig into the geography of the ancient world because it's important to understand what was going on at this time. So I'm going to put a map up on the screen and just explain to you. Back in this time, there were two north-south roads that went from Egypt to the great civilization of Mesopotamia, places like Babylon, Assyria, even Persia were north, way north. To get to that place, between those two great cultures, you had to, drive, you had to take one of these roads. The first road is right along the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. You can see it in there in the black on your map. It's called the Coastal Highway. That was the main road that almost everyone took when they went between Egypt and Mesopotamia. And it went right through Canaan, right through what became Israel. The second road is south of there, down from that road, also in black. And that's the Way of the Patriarchs. That road was traveled by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph when they traveled back and forth from Israel to Egypt during times of drought and famine. That was a smaller road. And some people took it, but not as often as the main road. As we pick up our story, we see here in Exodus 13, verse 17, it reads like this. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So the main road, the coastal highway we saw on the map, was the shortest route to the promised land. In fact, if you read the history books outside the Bible, you find out that numerous Egyptian armies marched up that road in about 11 days in order to attack Canaan or deal with people north of them that were enemies. So it was easy to go from Egypt to the promised land in just 11 days. That was only 10 to 11 miles a day of of marching or hiking along. So Israel could have arrived in the promised land in a short 11 days, 
And yet, God sent him a different way. He also talks about this idea that they might face battle when they get to the promised land. He talks about these Philistines. Well, it's interesting. If you go to Egypt and go to the tombs of the pharaohs, on the walls of the tombs are carved pictures of Philistine prisoners. Yeah, because the Philistines often tried to come down and attack Egypt. It didn't go well for them, but they were kind of these sea people. They would come by sea and by land down the road, try to attack Egypt, and the pharaohs would wipe them out and take them prisoners. So God knew if his people went up the main road, they were going to face the Philistines who were battle-hardened people. He didn't want to see his people have to face that, having just come out of slavery. Now instead, verse 18 tells us that they went this way. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness towards the Red Sea. Thus the Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. So God takes them a different way. Instead of the main road, instead of even the way of the patriarchs, it says he led them in a roundabout way. I love that word. It's kind of like a way that nobody really knew, no one really expected. God takes his people on this roundabout journey Right? Different than what they expected. Now, there's one little contradiction here. It says they were armed and ready for battle. The Hebrew there means kind of like they were marching in order. Right? They were all lined up in order, marching in order, going out in an orderly fashion. So, Greg, what happened then? What was next? What's going on in the story after this? All right. Well, I want to talk to you about the packing list. So if you knew you were heading out from one country to another or heading out into the wilderness possibly... Um, what would you pack along? There's a few instructions that God gave earlier about plundering the Egyptians, um, but the Israelites' leader, Moses, had one main thing on his packing list. Exodus 13, verse 19 says this, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear to do this. Joseph had said, God will certainly come to help you, and when he does, you must take my bones with you from this place. So 400 years earlier, Joseph, he of the coat of many colors or the amazing technicolor dream coat, if you've seen the Broadway version, um, had been Pharaoh's right-hand man. He had been the prince of Egypt. He had interpreted, Joseph, or interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. He had built Pharaoh's granaries. He had started a food bank program in a time of uh, famine that was so successful that it literally saved hundreds of thousands of people's lives. It saved nations his own family, that 11-day walk away uh, in Palestine, was so hungry that they came to Egypt to buy food from Joseph. So there, there's an amazing scene of reconciliation and reunion between Joseph and his estranged brothers, and Joseph makes this incredible comment. Now, this is um, just 12 pages really earlier in the Bible, but 400 years earlier. Joseph said this to his family. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position in Egypt so I could save the lives of many people. So no, don't be afraid. Joseph had been to his own kind of wilderness, kicked out of his own family. He was broken and then rebuilt by God and therefore saw his whole life with this amazing new perspective. Fast forward a little while later, Joseph, now an old man, 110 years old, on his deathbed. By the way, 110 was the perfect age, or the perfect fulfilled life for Egyptians. Joseph, on his deathbed, asked his own children and family to bring back his bones to the promised land. Joseph was looking forward far ahead into the future, 
and he was banking on God's faithfulness. Joseph was banking that God's promise to his own great-grandfather Abraham was going to come true, that there was a promised land, that there was a home for his family. Joseph was trusting that even though only his bones would make it back, that God's promise and God's word was absolutely true. So now 400 years later, the God that had guided the life of Joseph, the son of Jacob, also known as Israel, that same God was now guiding the pathway of all the children of Israel, now millions of people. 400 years later, that's a long time in the wilderness for Joseph's family, 400 years later. Sometimes it's 40 days and 40 nights, sometimes it's much longer. This wilderness we're about to enter, I wonder how long it's going to be, right? Is it going to be 40 days and 40 nights? It's almost been that long. Is it going to be years and years? Like, God only knows how long this is going to last. And in our own wilderness experience, right, we just look around, there's economic devastation already. There are more than 20 million Americans already out of work. Many of us are feeling the impacts of this or are watching today. Um, I mean, the regular school year is down. These things are unthinkable. The isolation many of us are experiencing. I mean, did you hear the prayers of our young adults and young people? Like, we are feeling this. And I haven't even mentioned the loss of life yet. So the question is, like, what, what is God up to? What good is this going to do? Here's the deeper question. Is it beyond God to be working right now in this present wilderness? Is it beyond God to bring something beautiful and good out of this? I mean, we are talking about the God who always uses the wilderness to bring his people to the threshold of a new era where something awesome happens for humanity and God's glory is newly and freshly revealed. We're talking about the God who saved nations because some older brothers hated their younger brother so much that they sold him into slavery and faked his murder and lied to their parents. Like, God used that to save nations. We're talking about the God who brought Ruth and Naomi's emotional wilderness to an end with the birth of a baby boy who was the grandfather to kings and queens. We're talking about the God who brought King David out of the 10-year wilderness to usher in the dawn of Israel's golden age. We're talking about the God who thrust his only begotten son into the wilderness to face devilish trials for 40 days and 40 nights and then brought him out with the revelation that he was Emmanuel, God in the flesh, Messiah. We're talking about the God who brought Jesus Christ back from the deepest, darkest wilderness in the grave to be the resurrection man, the firstborn of the dead. Like, that's a pretty great God. So if he is bringing us into the wilderness, what might he do through being such a faithful God? God is the one keeping time in the wilderness. God is the one who is going to set the agenda in the wilderness. And in these worship services for a while, we want to listen and pay attention and be totally open to what God might have for us individually and as a church and as humanity. So in Exodus chapter 13, are there any signs? Like, what is God doing? How is he, how is he guiding? Yeah. How is he shepherding? I just want to say amen to that last part. All right. Amen. Amen. Somebody got to say amen, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm left with three, three questions about God's working in the wilderness. And the first one is found in verses 21 and 22. So I'm going to read these with you. The Lord went ahead of them, 
He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud, and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night. And the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire from its place in front of the people. So how did Israel know that God was with them? Well, God gave them a super visible sign. He showed them these two pillars. One was a pillar of cloud, one was a pillar of fire. One by day, one by night. Super visible sign. In fact, the Israelites thought of these as the legs of God. If you read the Hebrew word for pillar, it's like the legs of God, like God's walking in front of them in the wilderness, showing them the way, guiding them on the way. Now, you might wonder, why do you need a guide in the wilderness? Well, I've been in the wilderness in Israel, and let me tell you, when you get in the middle of the wilderness and look around, it's all you see are rocks, sand, cliffs. I mean, you could literally wander for days and have no idea which direction you're going because it all looks the same. If you're not with someone who knows where they're going and knows the way, you're in big trouble. It's dry, it's, dry, it's rocky, it's hot, food is scarce, water is scarce. You need someone in the wilderness to guide you along to take you on the journey. So God, he walks ahead of his people and shows them this roundabout way they're going to go because it's not marked by a road. It's not the regular road. It's a different road. It's a roundabout way. It's a longer road. It's God's road for his people. The second question I'm faced with as I look at this passage is, is, was God's only motivation for not letting people go the easy way to keep them from battle? Or was there another motivation going on? Well, as I dug into my Bible, I found this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. This is Moses' long speech. This is way years later, after they've kind of wandered around the wilderness for much longer than they were supposed to. Moses is recapping things for them and kind of going through what they've been through casting some meaning to it, and he says this. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way through the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. I love this. According to this passage, God puts us in the wilderness to get our attention. He puts us in the wilderness to test us, to figure out what's in our hearts, to humble us. I mean, right? To, to say, you're not in control. You're not in charge. And are you going to really trust me? Are you going to look to me? Are you going to lean on me? Are you going to try to go your own way? So Israel is thrust into the wilderness and has to figure out what's going on inside them. And are they going to really look to God as the one who can bring them through this wilderness? There's one final question I'm left with, and that's this. What else could God be up to in this wilderness journey of the Israelites? Well, you have to jump ahead to the next chapter, chapter 14, Verse 4 reads like this. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. And I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. I love this. God knows that going the roundabout way, that taking his people on a long journey through the wilderness is going to allow him to show his power, which will get him glory and will help the Egyptians know and the Israelites know that he is the Lord. Wow. Now we find ourselves on the roundabout way right now. True? The corona way, I call it. <laughs> the corona way. I came up with that on my own. The roundabout way, uh, kind of through the wilderness. Like if 2020 started, if you had told me that I'd be sheltering at home, hiding from a virus I can't see, and that the whole world would be impacted that graduations would be canceled and school would be off and 
People would be working from home and sports events would be done. I mean, I'd be like, you're crazy. It's not going to happen. But we're on this crazy corona way, this roundabout way. It makes me wonder, what is God up to? Well, taking the cue from our story, he's obviously testing what's in our hearts. He's trying to get our attention. And we're on this roundabout way in the wilderness. I don't know about you, but I've done a lot of inner reflecting about my heart. What's going on there? What makes it tick? Do I want life to be like it used to be, or is there a different way he wants me to go? And we're certainly humbled. I mean, even our greatest experts have no idea what to do. We have experts all over the place trying to figure this out, scientists mixing test tubes, but they have no clue. So God is obviously humbling and testing the whole human race, trying to get our attention. What he really wants, he wants us to look to him. Yeah, to look to him for guidance, to seek him out for the way to go on this roundabout way. I, I know what you're thinking. The people of Israel, they got the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. Of course they could follow God and seek out his guidance. I mean, look at us. What do we have? Well, we got something better. Check this out. We have this book. They didn't have this book. It hadn't even been written yet. We can turn in this book and we can actually read and hear the very words of God for our lives. Amazing guidance. Besides that, if you've taken Jesus in, his Holy Spirit lives within you and he's speaking and whispering to you all the time, offering his guidance through the roundabout way in the wilderness, through the corona way. So I would encourage you when you're on this journey, don't take it alone. No, turn to God and look to him. Ask him for his guidance. Ask him what the next steps are. He knows the way. And finally, it's interesting that God seems to be able to show his power best on the roundabout way. When things are not normal, when things aren't efficient, when we're not running the main road that's going to get us there quickly, it gives God a chance to show his power. It gives God a chance to get the glory. It gives God a chance to show the world that he is God. You know, I've been on the roundabout way in my life a number of times. I can think back uh, during my time at Timothy Christian. My wife and I have been married for like eight years. And, uh, you know, students are awesome. High school students are great because they're honest. The parents are talking behind your back, but the students are just telling you right as it is. So I was like married eight years. Kids are starting to raise their hand in my class and say, hey, Rev, when are you going to have kids? I mean, you don't have any kids yet, right? Like, you've been married for eight years. And one kid offered, he, he brought me a book to help me know how it works. And I'm like, I, I got it. It's okay. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so finally, I was doing chapel one day, and I decided to tell the students, to tell the student body about the roundabout way my wife and I had found ourselves on. We were going for science experiments and doctor appointments, and we were basically told that they didn't know if we could have kids. They didn't know when it would happen. They didn't know what was going on. They were lost. They had done all the science. There was no answers. I remember my wife and I sitting at the house thinking, Really? this is our journey? This is where we're going to be? Like, no kids? Like, this is crazy. So during chapel that day, I asked the students to pray for us. Please, just pray for us. We don't forget about children. Now, we had tried to have kids for like four years. Three months later, three months later, my wife was pregnant with my oldest son, Ben. Now we have to pray the other way. Four is enough, right? We're good, we're good. <laughs> So I just want to encourage you, you know, you never know, on this corona way, 
this roundabout way, this long journey through the wilderness, God might actually have something specifically for you. Mike Breen, this author and pastor, writes it this way. In the Bible, God's presence is often accompanied by his glory. The Hebrew word for God's presence and glory is kavad, which means weight. In times of trouble, we often become aware of God's presence. Disciples are meant to dig. If we dig, the presence of God is always there, sometimes just below the surface. Would you pray with me as we finish out this time in the word of God? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Lord God, our Father, as we walk through the wilderness on this roundabout way, we pray that you would show up for us, that you would speak to us, that you would make us aware of your presence, and most of all, God, that you would uh, get the glory, that you would be the God we know you are, and that the world would get this. Thank you, God, for roundabout ways. We get to meet you in whole new ways. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.